This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. So there's a reason why I started Blood Origins. And that reason is simple. Is that I wanted to convey the truth about hunting. It brings awareness to, to non-hunters that it's, it's more than just killing animals. How do I start it? Brittany. My name. My name. Is, <laughs> does my hair look okay? It's fantastic. My name is Mike Axelrod. Start again. Yeah, I hated it too. <laughs> Braxton, you said something in the car to me. You said that you were living on borrowed time. Hmm. There's a perception around who hunters are, what we're supposed to be, and a a feminist that works for a non-profit that is a hunter that has only eaten wild game for the last 20 years is likely not the thing that people think about when it comes to a hunter. Ivan Carter is a conservationist. He has worked as a professional hunter. He's worked as an outfitter. But today he runs the Ivan Carter Wildlife Conservation Alliance. And in that, does some amazing conservation work. He was involved with the 24 Lions project. He's been involved with several other projects tied to giraffes. And lately he has been moving elephants from a special reserve in Mozambique up to a new designated habitat up in the middle of Mozambique. So I wanted to have him on to discuss some hard hitting, uncomfortable truths about elephants. This is a conversation worth sharing. Share it with your friends, leave us a review, leave us a rating, because I can guarantee it that you are going to learn a lot more about elephants than you ever, ever thought you would. So what's it, 1 o'clock in the afternoon for you? 12 o'clock? Uh, 12 o'clock. 12 o'clock. Are you having something South African? Please tell me you're having something South African for, for lunch. Well, at the moment, we're having South African weather, I can tell you that. Clear blue skies and a nice cool wintry day and um yeah no it's it's 
very typically South African. I'm in for a few days, just been out in the field for a few days. And, you know, something about the winter time, those cold winter mornings where it's still, you know, it's 80 degrees by 10 o'clock in the morning. This is a great time mm-hmm. of the year. One of my favorite, actually. Mm-hmm. Do you uh, have to put camphor cream on your hands and your, oh, and your yes. elbows? You know, that dry, dry, dry air, man. Yeah, you, you know it well, my friend. Oh, man, I miss that. I miss, we used to have like the huge tub in South Africa. We used to like have to lather our hands and uh, our elbows and stuff like that. Uh, yeah, that's, those were the days, man. I Isn't it funny remember. how you, you remember certain little things as they, as they pertain to a particular time in your life, whether it's a smell or a sound or whatever? You know, I can remember mm. as kids boarding school that the smell of that camphor cream when we were at boarding school and winter term, as you say, your hands and your elbows and your knees and your heels, that, that's what happens, you know? Yeah, and it would get so dry that if you didn't and you like formed your fist, your knuckles would crack yeah. and start bleeding and stuff. And people don't know that kind of stuff, man. Here, I'm in Mississippi right now. If I walked outside, it's still dark. It's 5 a.m. in the morning. Um, but I would hit a wall of steam, number one. And number two, we are having the wettest year on record. Like April, I think, was 21 inches or 22 inches. It's the wettest April we've wow. ever had. Wow. Um, we're just getting hammered with rain. Hammered, hammered, hammered with rain. So, yeah, I'm definitely jealous of the South African winter conditions right now. No, well, you know, it's funny. In Mozambique, it's not that far away. We could, we could be in our area. You know, it, it's a couple of thousand kilometers away. But just a couple of weeks ago, if you can believe it, we had over 200 millimeters of rain, which, you know, that, that's, you know, eight inches of rain in three days you know, in the beginning of June, you know, it's an incredibly wet area. And, um, you know, you go to that area and you've got high humidity all year long. And because you're at sea level, mm-hmm. you've also got very, very stable temperatures, obviously incredibly hot during the, during the end times of the year and, and at the beginning of the year. But at this time of the year, you've got nice cool evenings and mornings. But it's, it's kind of odd to think of a place in Africa like that that gets all of this winter rain, you know. Yeah, yeah. Hundred percent, hundred percent. Well, uh, as we typically do, we dive into conversation without ever introducing who the bloody guest is. So, um, Ivan Carter, introduce yourself. Well, my name's Ivan Carter. I've been in some way, shape, or form involved with wildlife, literally as long as I can remember. As a little kid, you know, I, I was always hand rearing owls or you know chasing elephants or doing something, and. Um, you know, that led me into becoming a professional hunter and a safari guide, guided all the way across Africa. And as, as I started to have kids of my own, I realized that, um, you know, I, I really don't believe enough is being done to do hardcore conservation. So we have a, a, a wildlife conservation nonprofit that's based out of Florida. We've got a few projects in Africa that, that we make a, a difference to. And um, yeah, it certainly keeps me busy. And then amid all of that, um, we founded a, a group called the Conservation Film Company where we pride ourselves in films that tell conservation stories. So, yeah, very much a, a busy kind of three jobs all rolled into one between the hunting and the guiding, filmmaking, and a conservation initiative. Um, we certainly keep busy. Yeah, and your, um, that, that conservation production company 
is um, that's Sean Fullion working with you, right? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. So yeah, um, Sean does some, very some talented great work. guy. Very talented guy, man. I've seen some of his reels and obviously some of the stuff that you guys are producing is top notch, man. It's it's definitely the kinds of storytelling that we need to tell. And you know, Robbie, I think what what makes us different is we really understand these stories from a very deep level. You know, you in a in an environment where you can tell it from a community perspective, you can tell it from a hardcore conservation perspective. We don't go out there with a preconceived idea of what the story needs to be. Truly, we go into the field and we allow people to tell their stories and we tell the stories of the real conservation that's got to happen, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. No, 100%. No, you guys are on the ground and uh, got savages in the back, hey? My Jeepers. savages are gone right now. Jeepers. <laughs> I always tell them if I've got my headset in, you don't need to be rushing around. <laughs> um, so let's talk. You've, you've actually just undertaken a, a pretty big project that I don't think anyone has actually, it's not on, any, it's not on many people's radars. Um, so I want to talk about that specifically because people are going to tune into this podcast and go, what the hell? Because they don't know, right? So I'll, I'll set the base. And I don't know the details of it, but I'll set the base of the premise that I know. Ivan Carter, you just decided to move a bunch of elephants. Yeah, so, it, you know, what, what happened was over time, we've got really known as a foundation um, for meaningful, impactful conservation. And, and we love projects where you've got measurable returns on the conservation investment because so many projects today, uh, people are asking for money. But the return is not very measurable. You can't say, okay, with your money, we achieved X. You know, whether you've put new boots on a Game Scout, did that make that Game Scout more effective? Well, yeah, of course it did. Well, how? Show me the statistics. Mm -hmm. And so we've done a lot of big translocations. We've funded a lot of translocations. We've engaged ourselves in a lot of translocations. But just recently, um, we were made aware of a few herds of elephants on the outside of the Maputo Special Reserve in Mozambique. These are elephants that are in conflict with humans. Um, and it's the same story, Robbie, across Africa, the kind of elephant in the room that no one wants to talk about. Um, and I did intend that pun, by the way. Yeah, um, exactly. <laughs> um, is this exploding human population. You've got an exploding human population, which is gradually, or in some cases, not so gradually, encroaching on wildlife and, and wildlife habitats. And, you know, people think of wildlife as all living in national parks. Well, probably as much as 70% of Africa's elephant live outside of protected areas, which means that right. potentially... A great statistic. Yes. Great statistic that very, very few people understand. Yeah. And so potentially at some point, as humans start to utilize every single acre that is available to them, at some point, they come into conflict with elephant. And one thing I want to make completely clear, these are not bad elephant. It's never a bad elephant. It's a bad scenario that a good elephant finds itself in the middle of. And so when an elephant trashes the crops of a, of a subsistence farmer's lands, he potentially puts that family straight onto the breadline. Is that a bad elephant? In their eyes, absolutely it's a bad elephant. In our eyes, it's just an elephant doing what elephants do 
which is hardwired to find the best available food in any scenario. So he's not going to walk mm -hmm. past a, a, a field of succulent corn on his way to eat an acacia tree. He's going right. to stop at that field. And so as we are seeing more and more people, more and more agriculture in elephant areas, we, we end up with this conflict scenario. So getting back to the story, because I digress, I get pretty passionate about elephant, but getting back to the story, we were made aware of a few herds of elephant that because of the exceptional effort by ANAC, which is the, the, the Mozambican equivalent of fish and game, as well as their partners, Peace Parks, in the Mozambique Special Reserve, the elephant population has grown significantly there. And so a lot of these elephants started commuting in and out of the park and even started living outside the park in community areas and creating a bit of trouble with the communities, eating their crops, destroying their grain stores, and in a couple of cases, actually even killing some people who bumped into the elephants while they were looking for honey or whatever else they were doing in the field. And so there comes a point where, you, where the community dictates something has to be done about these elephants. And the easy solution is call in the military and kill them. That is absolutely not the conservation solution, though, because Mozambique is also a country that is doing great things for conservation. They are are really taking great strides. And so there's a lot of game reserves further north in the country that don't have enough elephant. They've been stabilized since the Civil War, which has been over for nearly 30 years now. Those game reserves yeah. have been stabilized. They've got nonprofits that have engaged in their anti-poaching and community development. And they are ready to now see their elephant populations rejuvenated and brought back. So we thought to ourselves, well, Surely this is a fantastic win from three different perspectives. You can help a community by removing these elephants that are killing them or destroying their livelihoods, should I say. You can help a national park that needs more elephant. But most of all, you help a really iconic species in the continent of Africa to have a little bit more home range. Because, you know, elephant are something which are, are what I call a charismatic species, Robbie. So nobody talks about the grasshoppers and the bugs and the beetles and right, the, the right. bushes and the grasses. However, if they don't exist, neither do the elephant because you've got to look at an ecosystem as a pyramid. So at the top of the pyramid are your apex predator or your apex herbivores or your largest herbivores. And then slowly underneath that pyramid, all the way down to the soil. So if your soil is healthy, on top of that, you've got healthy vegetation. If your vegetation is healthy, it will have healthy biodiversity. If that is healthy, it will provide nutrient for the smaller animals, which provide nutrient for the bigger animals, and up the pyramid we go. And so everybody wants to save an elephant, but nobody thinks about the landscape these elephants require to survive. So with this amazing effort by Anak and various partners across Mozambique, they've got these giant landscapes. So... <laughs> Ivan Carter being Ivan Carter and much to the, the sometimes horror and the, 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 the frustrations of my board, I said, hey, guys, we need to move these elephants. And so we engaged with a, a, a very cool couple, um, Bob and Dana Nunley, and they agreed that they would not only fund this, but that they wanted to come and participate and actually watch this happen. And so Epic. literally from the first phone call in January, um, till early April, we, we were in the planning phases and then we moved these elephant and they were 
you know, we, we moved all told um, uh, two, three actually family groups of elephant, um, just a little bit less than 30 individuals, and we moved them over a thousand kilometers north. And so, you know, when you're moving elephants like that, Robbie, I mean, the logistics are unbelievable. You, you've got oh, I can imagine 50 ton trucks that have got to get into the bush in sandy conditions. Um, you've got helicopters with vets that have got to dart these elephants. Think of a herd of elephant that you want. Did them- you have to drive through Maputo? We did with these elephants. Absolutely, <laughs> you can imagine these this convoy of trucks going through a big city, you know, full of elephants. I mean, it's just. Amazing logistics, Robbie, and, and amazing teams. And, you know, what I always say is conservation is not possible without great partnerships. And, you know, we, we engage with Kester Vickery Conservation Solutions for the actual capture. The Mozambique Wildlife Alliance gave us extra vet support. Um, you know, everything from the trucks to the people who are managing getting the trucks into the country. You drive a 50-ton rig through the bush. I mean, we had mm-hmm. six-by-six vehicles to just pull them through the sand. You know, local people came to the came to the party with tractors, four-wheel drive tractors to to help. I mean, it's a I mean, it's the largest animal that walks the face of the planet. Trying to move a herd true, of those is true. not that's not an easy deal, you know. So Ivan, let's let's talk about, you know, I want to talk about perceptions for a second. So IUCN has just classified elephants as endangered. In your mind, hard-hitting conversation, true or not true, elephants are endangered. So let me answer this in a little bit more than one word. Elephants are one of the most complex conversations we can possibly have. So in northeastern Botswana, way overpopulated in my opinion, destroying their ecosystem and reducing biodiversity by virtue of their numbers. And that landscape, that kind of northeastern Botswana, southwestern Zimbabwe, um, southern Angola, it's thought that there's about 207,000 elephants in that landscape. So my answer is a resounding not true. Let's look at southern Tanzania at the end of a 20-year poaching epidemic where areas where as a young person I used to pursue elephants there, and we would see literally hundreds in a day. You will not see one single track there today. So you ask me that question as I'm standing in that landscape? True. So elephants are very complicated because they are very charismatic. So people have a great emotional attachment to the species. They're very intelligent. They've got all of these different attributes which make us believe as human beings that elephants are actually sentient beings. They do have a thought process. They don't just simply exist. The danger with that, though, is now when you come to a hardcore conservation measures in order to manage elephants, people do not want to engage in the hard conversations. They don't want to manage elephants because they're sentient beings. They think, are we going to be too stressful? What's going on? And so, Really, when you look, let's get back to your question before we digress, because we've got time to have this conversation deeply. Robbie, let us say that elephants are probably one of the most important species to take into consideration the landscape you are referring to while we are in a discussion about elephant. If we are discussing Mm -hmm. elephant in southern Tanzania, endangered. We are discussing elephant in Cameroon 
endangered. We are discussing right. elephant in southwestern Zimbabwe, overpopulated. We are discussing mm-hmm. elephant in Atosha Pan, overpopulated. We are discussing mm-hmm. elephant in northern Botswana, overpopulated. We are discussing mm-hmm. elephant in Kruger National Park, overpopulated. As soon as you go north, you know, elephant is, unfortunately for the animal, one of the species that bears one of the most valuable commodities known to man from the wildlife world, and that is ivory. And so mm-hmm. ivory historically has funded a lot of bad stuff across Africa. And so right. you get to the less well-governed countries of Africa or those with more civil unrest, the first thing that ends up happening is the natural resources are plundered, one of which is elephant. So right. if we were to be talking about Uganda, during Idi Amin's rule, he nearly wiped out the elephants there. However, here we are 30, 40 years later, it's got a very young elephant population, but it's bouncing back remarkably well. So are they endangered mm-hmm. or not? I think that that's a very open discussion. There are sufficient elephants in those landscapes that if they continue to be protected, they will repopulate. They are not by any means extinct. And as we sit today with their current protection, they are not in danger. However, again, let's look at a less Let's look somewhere like the DRC, Democratic Republic of Congo, the northwestern part of the Democratic Republic of Congo. The anti-poaching is like an open, full-scale war there. Are the elephants endangered? 100% yes, they are. They are in the process of being plundered as we're having this conversation. So elephant, by virtue of the fact that they cover a large amount of different landscapes, both political landscapes and physical landscapes across Africa, require a different solution and a different action plan in accordance with where they are. So if you talk to game mm-hmm. ranchers in South Africa today, if we could... No, they can't get rid of their elephants. No, they can't. And there's arguably over a thousand individual elephants in private hands that need a new home right now today. So in South Africa, they are not endangered by any means. Doesn't mean we should love them less. Doesn't mean we should manage them less. But the question that most people ask, are they endangered? No, they are not. And so could we use South African elephants to repopulate other landscapes? Absolutely resounding yes. Let's get back to how our conversation first started in Mozambique. What but did Ivan, I- you can't move a thousand elephants. Actually, you can. You can move a thousand elephants. However, where do you move them to? So let us talk about how we started the conversation where I said to you that Anak in Mozambique has done a great job of stabilizing landscapes. What do I mean by stabilizing landscapes? What they've done is they've eliminated the poaching. They've got conservation non-for-profits in there to support the anti-poaching teams They've got their communities benefiting from healthy wildlife and a healthy ecosystem. And they are and now... good hunting outfits, right? Hunting outfits, absolutely. taking care of concessions and stuff like that. Absolutely. And that's another statistic. You know, a lot of what we are talking about falls under a category, Robbie. I'd love you to know this phrase. It's called an uncomfortable truth. And people do not like uncomfortable truths because it makes them uncomfortable. And one of those uncomfortable truths is that there's more land protected by hunting outfitters than by national parks in Africa today. 
And so Ooh, Ivan Carter, you are just, you know, you're you you're much smarter than everyone says that you are. You know <laughs> I've never told anybody I'm smart, but I will tell you this. I'll tell you the but truth. On Wednesday, what I'm saying is the reason I'm saying this is that we have an infographic that we just created that is exactly that. And what we did was we took the we took the square kilometers under hunting in Africa. And we married it against the square kilometers of states in the US. And we put them together and relativized it to the actual size of Africa. We also did the same thing for the UK, since the UK seems to uh, know how to manage <laughs> African resources better than Africa. So yeah, I, you're absolutely right. That is an uncomfortable truth of the, the meaning and reason for what hunting does for wildlife protection. You know, and I think, Robbie, not to go down that rabbit warren too much, I think it's for a different conversation that I'll very comfortably have. But you look at what's happened in Tanzania today. So let's rewind back to Cecil the Lion, which it's hard for me to even say that phrase. Cecil the Lion resulted in a ban on the import of lion trophies uh, to America. The next thing that happened is hunting outfitters in Tanzania that relied on the income from American hunters started to hand back their concessions to government. The next step was communities started saying, well, you're not utilizing that land. We want to have it back. And today, 15 million acres of Tanzania has been resettled as a result of the ban in lion hunting. So the uncomfortable truth is that the ban in lion hunting has killed 15 million acres. When I say killed, is in the process of killing 15 million acres worth of lion habitat with all of the lions. And so the, the anti-hunter that waved a billboard and had that ban put in place has already gone down the street and they're waving a billboard at another event. They haven't looked to see what the effect was of waving the billboard. They may have stopped a handful of hunters going to Africa and killing a lion, but the effect on the African economies and the knock-on effect on the wildlife economies supported by that has, has been dramatic and drastic and devastating. And so again, um, getting back to what we are talking about, Robbie, with elephant, there are teams that exist today that can comfortably move two or three, even 400 elephants a year. We are not short of elephant. And this is a statement I really want to make. We are not short of elephant, but we are short of stable elephant habitat. And it's not because of hunting or non-hunting. It's not because of parks or no parks. It's simply because all of the landscapes that are stable, that have all of the landscapes that are stable, that have ecosystems worthy of supporting an elephant herd have already got elephant herds and it's right. only it's only wildlife developing countries like Uganda or Mozambique which are freshly stabilized that can end up taking those elephants and putting them into a viable habitat the flip side to that is that a lot of the ecologists in those ecosystems you're going to hate it when i say this are going these ecosystems are wonderfully healthy, unlike Southern Africa, because there's not too many elephant. And so yeah. 
you cannot, let's take the wolf problem that is rearing its ugly head right now in North America. You cannot introduce an animal unless you introduce it alongside a long-term management strategy for that animal. And so everybody wants to see an elephant reintroduced into a landscape. Nobody wants to sign off on the management of that elephant when there gets to be too many, because that Mm -hmm. means one of two things. It either gets utilized to provide protein for a community, which means elephants must die, and oh my goodness, we can't ever have that happen. Or it gets utilized simply for hunting, which everybody, oh my goodness, we can't have that happen. So let's just ignore that uncomfortable truth and carry on with the conversation. But that's not how I roll. Let's hit that uncomfortable truth on the end of the nose and say, okay, if we are going to reintroduce elephant into Gile National Park in Mozambique, what are we going to do when that area is fully subscribed? Are you going to allow hunting? Are we going to be culling them and utilizing their protein to feed the community in order to keep the community from poaching? What are we going to use those elephants for? I don't know the answer, Robbie, but Mm -hmm. those are questions that have to be answered. And in today's world, there are too many people on the planet for us to be able to have the default reply, which is, oh, don't worry, they'll stabilize themselves. They will yeah, not. Let Mother Nature take care of it. Let Mother Nature take its course is great when you don't have humans. But let Mother right. Nature take its course when we are isolating these little islands of healthy ecosystem amid this giant landscape that's getting flooded by humanity. Mother Nature doesn't know how to deal with that, unfortunately. So let's talk about those uncomfortable truths a little bit further. Um, and let's use, we can use Kruger Park as an example Actually, let's use Kruger Park because it's a, it's a, it is quite a good model of the uncomfortable truth. Um, so Kruger National Park, for everyone's edification, is probably the premier destination ecotourism place, public, quote-unquote public, um, place in South Africa. I remember going there as a kid. Ivan, you probably went there as a kid. Um, you know, they had a substantial uh, elephant prop population that, in, that back in the day was managed to the tune of a population of about 7,000 through culling. Uh, They then underwent a very significant animal rights campaign against them that stopped culling back in the 90s. And elephant populations have skyrocketed since. They went and put forward a very intricate, scientifically-based, high elephant uh, density zones, low elephant density zones, and try to translocate elephants out of the low density zones to encourage elephants to migrate from high to low. But I believe the population today, Ivan, you better, you may have a better idea than I do, but I think it's in the fifteen to 18,000 range. You know, I'm not sure of the exact population, Robbie, but one, one thing I will say is that, again, while we're talking about uncomfortable truths, Kruger National Park, for the folks who don't know of it, it's this long, it's 4 million acres, and it's north-south running. And it covers an area that traditionally would not have had much animals in in the dry season. In order to maintain the populations of animals, they put put man-made water points through the park. Um, Another thing that happened in Kruger is several decades ago, um, they decided the, the landowners around Kruger National Park said, what happens if we took down our fences between us and Kruger and allowed Kruger to expand? And that became the greater Kruger ecosystem. What yep. that means is that 
there are certain rules to do with the wildlife that they have to adhere to, yet they are ostensibly private land. And on that private land area, everybody builds a lodge that they want to attract guests to, and that is their business model to get a return on their investment in the wildlife land. One of the problems with that, Robbie, is you now have hundreds of lodges, maybe not hundreds, but but many, many, many lodges, each of which has got a water hole, each of which feeds elephants and a few other species. And you now have permanent water in an ecosystem that never used to have permanent water. Had they made Kruger National Park east-west and have the Kruger National Park flowing from, from east near the coast all the way up into the mountains on the west, which was the natural migration route of the animals, the elephants and everybody else would have been governed by the lack of water during the dry season, and they would have moved up into the mountains. A certain number of them would have been you know, lost with that migration, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We have now created a scenario where there's more elephants than landscape available in that area. And so every lodge that you come to is a water point. So the elephants don't have to move far. There's not the same stresses that used to historically occur. But one thing that's very, very interesting with the elephant is if you look at the collar data from the collared elephants in Kruger National Park, there's certain parts of that landscape they do not utilize from a mineral perspective. Yet on the edges of the park, there are certain mines that are bringing minerals to the surface. And in spite of all the humanity and mining trucks and roads and all of that mess, the elephants in the nighttime walk amongst the mining town and go and eat the soil in those mines. So amazing things are being learned about these animals where it, it, it would follow, and the research has not been done yet, and but it is certainly underway, but it would follow that mineral deficiencies will influence their movement much more than food deficiencies, which is kind of counter to everything else that we've thought. However, the, the, the trump card with elephant is, of course, water provision. So in the Kruger Park proper, not in the greater Kruger, a lot of the man-made water holes have been either switched off in the case of pumps or in the case of dams, they, they burst those dams on purpose so that the elephants don't have the water to hold them in that ecosystem because the ecologists will tell you the elephants are modifying that ecosystem beyond what is natural and it can't manage it. So what do you do, Ivan? That's the problem. That's the uncomfortable truth, right? There's, there's you know, two times carrying capacity of elephant populations, and let's just then broadly generalize it across most landscapes uh, that have overpopulation of elephants. Kruger National Park, two times over carrying capacity. Zimbabwe, southern Zimbabwe, over three times over carrying capacity. Northern Botswana, three to four times over carrying capacity. What's the solution here, Ivan? To me, there's only two. There's let Mother Nature take care of it, or a, a monster cult. So, so there's, there's a really good phrase, and we've also got some hard data to back up the second part of my reply to you, but a really good phrase is responsible use of resources. So in order that we manage our wildlife, why do, what, is, what is the meaning of the word conservation? So Robbie, a lot of people will say, well, it means anti-poaching, and that's true, or it means translocating animals, and that's true. But really holistically, conservation should really mean to all of us conserving the entire biodiversity. Because 
what is the point of preserving elephants at the cost of insects, preserving rhinos at the cost of birds? You know, what is more important? Because when it really comes down to it, we need them all in order for the ecosystem to sustain itself. So, so conservation needs to mean the conserving of the entire biodiversity, not an individual species potentially at the expense of others. So if you go into the Okavango Delta, you will see thousands of elephants at the expense of the vegetation diversity. There isn't diversity mm-hmm. of vegetation. Mm-hmm. So then there's two conversations to answer your question. If I come to you and I say, we are going to cull elephants and we are going to feed the meat to people. Everybody goes, you can't do that. If I come to you and I say, we've identified impoverished communities where mothers are not able to provide well enough for their kids and there's a lot of hungry people, we are going to use protein from sustainably and responsibly utilizing our wildlife resources in our national parks, and we are going to feed the people to stop them from subsistence poaching, that is now a proper conversation starter that is not overwhelmingly shut shut down by the emotion that is generated by the use of the word elephant. Mm -hmm. Because if you use the word elephant and cull in one sentence, the hard truth is we lose half of our audience. If you use elephant and management, people want to know, well, what do you mean by management? And if we use the word responsible in any of these conversations, as individuals, we all want to feel like we're responsible. Are we responsible in the way we bring up our children? We want to say yes. Are we responsible in the choice of food we have? We want to say yes. Are we responsible in our use of alcohol or drugs or name everything? The word responsible is something that elicits a positive reaction from most people. So should we be responsible in our utilization and management of wildlife? Absolutely. So what does that actually mean? That leads to a bunch of hard conversations that you simply have to say, is letting nature run its course responsible? It might be if you're thinking about elephants. But now, if everything else has to die before the the elephant, so we've got a real-time... You know, reality in the 80s when all of the elephants in Savo, they they overpopulated in Savo, they killed everything before they died. And so if you're looking from the perspective of biodiversity, is it responsible to allow nature to take its course? You're probably going to get a resounding no. So therefore, it is responsible to manage our elephants. Yes. Now, what is the responsible way to manage our elephants? Should we make sure that if, is it our responsibility to make sure that every landscape that can receive elephants gets elephants? Yeah, that's a responsible way to do that. Is there a responsible way to move those elephants? Absolutely there is. This is what it looks like. So as soon as you include the word responsible in your your narrative, you start to get a lot greater acceptance of it. Is it responsible of us to feed people that live next to the national park with the wildlife that lives in the national park? Yes, that is responsible. It's only responsible if it's done sustainably and responsibly. (laughs) So it's this great phrase that brings everybody to the conservation table. Because 
Is it responsible to provide water for an animal that needs it? Well, let's look at the cost of that water. I'm not talking about the financial cost. I'm looking at the cost to the ecosystem. And by the time you finish the conversation, you're going to go, well, if we really want nature to take its course, it is not responsible to provide water. But the elephants are going to die. Okay? But if we stop them dying, is that responsible? Because then there's going to be too many, and they're going to destroy the habitat. No, that's not. so. So as complex as this conversation is, Robbie, including the word responsible in the conversation eliminates a lot of the emotion because we've Mm -hmm. simply got to ask ourselves, is this a responsible course of action? Yeah, what is the responsible, as you said, as what is the responsible path forward? What is the responsible course of action? What is the responsible thing that we should be doing that is going to sustain this wildlife for our kids and our grandkids to see one day? Totally. So if you are a tribes person living on the edge of a national park and a lion comes to kill your cattle, you look at that lion and you say, the responsible thing I need to do for the better of my family is to kill the lion. We look at it as a conservationist and say, the responsible thing for us to do is try to eliminate that conflict by stopping the lion from being in conflict with the human. So it's a fence, it's a translocation, it's killing, whatever it might be. But as soon as you use the word responsible and you truly look at it from every perspective, including the animal's perspective, we start to see very viable solutions coming out in the conversation for each landscape. And that's where hopefully conservation is going, Robbie, where we are starting to look for sustainable, responsible solutions. So I would say that hunters have a very important responsibility, and that is to tell the truth. We do not Mm -hmm. hunt to feed a village. We do not hunt to dig a well or to build a school because if that was the reason, we'd just send money. We hunt because we enjoy the pursuit of big game. However, the result and the effect of that is that schools get built, communities get looked after, clinics get funded, anti-poaching teams are, 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 are created. And so really when you look at it, is it responsible of us to deliver a dialogue that's not entirely true. Of course it's not. So as soon as we start start taking the responsibility to educate people and educate people on the responsible use of our resources, so you are in a home and I'm in a home, every single thing, if you look around you, is has was at one point a natural element, whether it's the concrete in your walls, whether it's the wood of your floors, whether it's the fabric of your curtains, has that been obtained responsibly? We probably don't know that. Whether it's the oil that came out of the ground that turned into the plastic, which is in every part of our lives, has it been responsibly procured and is it responsibly disposed of? Why should wildlife be any different? Because if we think that wildlife doesn't need to be responsibly managed, It's just a resource. It's the same as wood or concrete or diamonds or a precious mineral. It's just a resource. If it's properly managed, it's going to be there forever. If it's not responsibly utilized and managed, it's going to go away. Mm -hmm. No, 100%. Well, um, that's certainly, you know, it is. It's conveying that I like what you just said in terms of hunting. You know, a lot of... 
and we're not going to get down this rabbit hole, but just as a fine point, we use the word, we use the phrase hunting is conservation. And in, in, in reality, that's not true. Um, but there is several links between hunting as an action and conservation as a consequence. Yes. Totally. And it's those links that we're not, we often forget about the responsibility of the action to the consequence. And you and us and a lot of other people are starting to see that and are starting to say, man, we should be putting a little bit more of a spotlight on these consequences versus the action. So when you say hunting is conservation, the caveat to that is that hunting is not conservation. Hunting generates money that, if well used, can lead to conservation. But the blanket statement that hunting is conservation is not true at all. Because there's a lot of examples where hunting is not good and it's not being followed. It's not the rules of, of ethics and sustainability are not, are not followed. And so what one has got to be very, very careful of with this conversation is to make sure that the word responsible comes into every part of it. Are we having a responsible conversation? Are these responsibly procured facts? The fact that, that you know, the, the wildlife industry in South Africa has x number of millions of animals in that have replaced sheep and cattle farms that is a great statistic not all of it is responsibly utilized you know you've got all kinds of whether it's color variants whether it's canned lions you know you could argue that that's wildlife generating money so it must be good because hunting is conservation not in those cases and so hunting generates money which when well used can turn into conservation is a phrase nobody can argue with. However, the the word responsible, when that comes into it, so I'm going to give you a quick, a quick story. Take the dehorning of a rhino. So there is no greater animal to turn grass into gold than a rhino because it just eats grass and off its nose grows something that is worth many, many times per, kilo, per kilogram more than gold. So mm -hmm. if we were to be able to responsibly harvest that product and use it to benefit the ecosystem which supports that rhino, there's no better way to turn grass into gold or money that protects the ecosystem that protects the animal that turns that grass into money. So there would be mm -hmm. no better responsible use of a rhino than as a conduit to putting horn on the market to generate money to protect the landscape that that rhino lives in. And so if you can think of a better way to turn grass into gold, let me know because I don't know of one. Because when you look at the statistics of how many acres it takes to look after a herd of white rhino and how much horn you can generate from that rhino and what that would sell for on the street in Beijing, why on earth are we not allowing that to happen as a society? But we are quite happy with everybody taking all of the wildlife away and putting a herd of cows there, which generate a fraction of the money that a rhino could generate. And that's why cows are the, the most common large herbivore in the world, is because mm -hmm. we allowed to freely trade in them. Yep, yep, well said, well said. Uh, that's a, a, a definite rabbit hole to itself in terms of the whole trade of uh, wildlife resources. And we'll leave that for a, another podcast. Ivan, where can people find you? 
uh, what can they, how can they learn more about what you do? So um, the probably the best is Instagram, Ivan.Carter on Instagram. That's at Ivan.Carter. Um, our foundation is IvanCarterWCA.org or just my website, which is IvanCarter.com. But Robbie, it's been a great, great, great pleasure and look forward to the next one and going down a different rabbit hole. No, for sure. Well, we should do this regularly because it's a it's a good connectivity and it's good hard-hitting discussion topics that I know people enjoy. Um, so, yeah, you go have some some good South African lunch in a beautiful South African winter and I'm going to see what the weather's looking like in the humidity of Mississippi. <laughs> well, enjoy your summer's day. I'll enjoy my winter's day and hopefully sooner rather than later we'll be face-to-face across a campfire and bring some of these conversations home. Yes, sir. Cool. Well, that's it for today. I appreciate you listening, as always. Leave a review, share it with your friends, and most importantly, do what's right to convey the truth around hunting.